0: In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart.
1: Hey folks, it's Michael O'Sullivan, the host of the Oil & Gas Tech Podcast. And I just wanna jump in here really quick and let you know that this particular episode of Oil & Gas HSE is made possible by the very smart people at mCloud Technologies. Now, we here at OGGN have just been getting to know the folks over at mCloud, and I'm telling you they are doing some fantastic stuff for the industry. just think about Connected Worker and all the amazing things that you can do just by having a little monocle in front of your eye and a little microphone, and you look at things and you talk, and they magically show up in the cloud on a dashboard. Now, here's the exciting part. They just opened a brand new ESG and digital transformation hub right here in Houston, Texas, and they are hiring in all areas. So if you've got anything to do with field operations, or if you want to work for a really cool, fast-growing tech company, then go to mcloudcorp.com
2: and you will learn all about it.
0: Today, my guest is Sarp Ozcan. Sarp, thanks for coming on the show today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So Sarp, the first question I got to ask, and you know, if I were a really good podcast host and the people who listen to the show on a regular basis know that I don't always follow the conventional rules, we could go into whether that's good or bad or not. But did I pronounce your name right? You actually did. Yeah. Okay. So Sarp Ozcan. so Sarp, everybody knows I'm in Houston or actually a small community about 50 miles northwest of Houston on Lake Conroe. Where are you right now? I am in Galveston, Texas right now. Galveston, Texas. Well, everybody's heard of Galveston, Texas. I suppose with a name like Sarp Ozcan, you must be from Galveston, right? Close, but I'm originally <laughs> from Turkey. <laughs> oh, wait. Originally from where? Turkey. Turkey. Okay. All right. All right. Well, they got a big coast on, in Turkey. You know, you just a few thousand miles from there to the coast of Galveston.
2: That's right. Smooth sailing.
0: Yeah, okay. So that's where you're from originally. When did you come to the United States? And I'm guessing you don't live in Galveston. Are you on vacation right now or what?
2: Yeah, so I moved to the United States back in 1997. And, you know, I've been going back and forth between Turkey during the summers and everything as I grew up. But my family originally moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then to Denver. Colorado. Spent most of my childhood growing up in Denver. Went to Chicago for school and then to France for a brief while. And then after I finished my education, I started working in Denver. Made the move to Houston, Texas in 2019. We've been living in Galveston with my wife now for Several months as we make it through the summer, but we'll head back into a city side Houston here soon.
0: Okay. All right. Well, that's being able to do everything remotely now. You can hang out in a nice place like Galveston. So that's Absolutely. great. So Absolutely. speaking of nice places, on the opposite end of Houston, outside of Houston, is a place called the Woodlands. That's actually where I met you, I guess it was a couple of months ago. At the Evolve, it was called the Evolve, the Future of Energy Conference. And I failed to say, Sarp, you work for a company called Inveris, which I have the hardest time saying that name. I want to say Inversus, or in, it just Inverus doesn't roll off my tongue.
2: Yeah, one of the easiest ways to remember it is it rhymes with Embarrass. <laughs> the Inverus name really is a three part name, the EN really standing for energy which is the space we serve there is sort of the latin for to see to be able to see and predict is what we're really trying to enable everybody to do with our platforms and us is us so uh, it's a conglomeration of those three words that That's uh, clever. That's clever.
0: That's clever. I like that. And thinking of embarrassed it, it's easier to let in roll off my tongue. So Sarp you're the senior director for power and renewables, and that's actually what we're going to be talking about here in just a second. But back to Inveris, that's the old drilling info, isn't it?
2: That's right. That's right. Drilling info rebranded as Inveris several years ago, particularly because we wanted to highlight the fact that we do more than just oil and gas. We have operations that span the whole energy landscape and other things like commodities as well. So as we continued to grow, we outgrew our name as well. And we wanted it to be more inclusive of the capabilities that we have in house. So went with Inverus. So that's interesting. And we'll be sure and put
0: Inveris's website and put your LinkedIn contact info in the show notes so people can contact you. Can you still get the old services? I was, of course, a sales manager for a drilling fluids company, and we got the reports from drilling info on where all the rigs were and where they were located, and we got all kinds of
2: old well information and and recaps and all that sort of thing. Is that still available? Absolutely is. We haven't lost any of the data. To the contrary, we've gotten even more, and that's the side of the business I started my career on as well. I... Was in charge of our forward-looking tools, really production forecasting, which required all of the data sets that you spoke about, being able to put together analytics tools on that front. And then I ran our consulting team for a while, largely around mergers and acquisitions for upstream and midstream companies prior to moving to the power and renewables vertical that we started in February of last year really with the vision of making sure that we are able to get the same sort of data that's going to be key, vital to the energy transition, and including it in the same platform as all of those legacy data sets that we talked about, so that we can really have the tools necessary to understand any part of the energy vertical that we'd like to, or any adjacent business.
0: Well, there you go, folks. That's why you listen to this podcast. We only bring the best companies with the best resources to your attention. So this Evolve, the Future of Energy Conference, you were one of the speakers at this conference on a variety of topics, actually not just in a variety of sessions, but your first one was entitled Four Forces of the Energy Evolution. You said that there are four main forces that drive the energy evolution landscape, political, consumer, investor, and microeconomics. Let's talk about that, break that down, Sorry.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. It's just a framework that we've really come up with to be able to break down the parts of the preferences and the incentives that underlie sort of the energy evolution today. If you think about sort of the societal preferences from a political perspective and from an investor perspective, we're continuing to see People move to a more climate-aware approach, both from a policy perspective as well as from an investor perspective. From a personal preferences perspective, too, we're seeing consumers shift to using energy in terms of electrons rather than heat. For example, everybody saw the Super Bowl commercials this year. Everything was about electric cars, right? I remember when it was cool to have a car that was really loud. Now it's cool to have a car that's really quiet. So, the consumer preferences are shifting. That's a personal preference shift. Microeconomics, too, especially as costs came down for these renewable technologies over the last decade, decade and a half, we saw that there was increasing economic competitiveness, along with, of course, the policy side incentives that were afforded to renewables. So, all of these things have moved forward the energy evolution. And some of those incentives are not just financial incentives, but also the value-based incentives that we talked about that are driving the larger shift in the energy mix today.
0: Okay. So along that area, another session that you did had to do specifically with finance. I don't know, you used the term here microeconomics in the first one, but one of the precursor to this Second session that you did at the conference was chronic underperformance of assets is well documented. Yeah.
2: What does that mean? That's correct. So, if we think about sort of the project finance landscape within which these solar and wind projects are built, what you really end up with is a developer putting together a project, putting it into some sort of special purpose company setup, and then shedding risks away from the special purpose entity. So what I mean by shedding risks is they contract with an engineering procurement construction company to build it. And they get some guarantees back in terms of timing and things like that. And there are penalties if they don't hit that a contract with an operations and maintenance provider, and they have guarantees in place for the availability of the solar farm or the wind farm on a regular basis sign up power purchase agreement which ties in their price for a large part of the solar farm or wind farms economic life and all of these things shed risk away which means that of course the returns are diminished as well so really when we think about the returns of a solar or wind project we're talking about let's say high single digits low double digits is what you're targeting, which is very different from what we target on the oil and gas side of the business. But of course, it's a lot less risk involved in the solar and wind side of things. Now, what risk you can't really shed away is the sun shining or the wind blowing or natural disasters and soiling and things like that. And what we've found is that especially on the solar project side. And recently, as solar has become more competitive, we've seen that one out of eight projects are chronically underperforming. It's been well documented.
0: Okay. Now, unpack that for me. When you say it's chronically underperforming, you're talking about from the energy that it actually is supposed to be producing, or you're talking about from an investor's point of view?
2: From an investor's point of view, technically both. So, for example, one of the shops in the space, KWH Analytics, put out a a report about what was expected in the actual underlying investment model for a P99, right? Like most bearish case for what it could perform versus how they performed, we could see that In most cases, there were one out of eight shops were underperforming their P99, which is statistically should never happen. Okay. Explain to everybody what a P99 is. Well, it means that one out of a hundred times is how that asset would perform at that very, very low energy production level, right? But we're saying it's done more than twice in several year span, which means that the statistics were quite wrong, right, in terms of what we were expecting. So the resource availability and the production estimates going into a lot of the solar and wind projects have chronically been too optimistic. And that leads to lower returns for equity investors in the longer term. So, what does that bode for solar in the
0: future? I mean, does it have a promising future? Where's it going in the future?
2: Well, I think in the short term, solar has some headwinds, certainly. First of all, investors are going to absolutely want to see better estimates of the actual resource availability and production. For the projects that they're going to be investing in, they're not going to be okay with chronic underperformance in the long term. And that would put even some of their debt in danger if this was to continue unabated. The other headwinds that are obvious right now are, of course, the supply chain related issues. Even with President Biden coming out and allowing for the two year sort of moratorium on the tariffs. It doesn't really bode well for the industry that there is uncertainty past that point in time, especially for any of those panels coming from the companies in the Oxen anti-dumping, anti-circumvention study. The additional things to note is that from solar side, I think we have seen costs come down quite a bit. And that's really what's made it competitive. So this recent jump up in supply chain related issues and timing issues and cost issues that have come with it, raising the cost of solar installments 14 to 20% in most areas means that it's not the best time for solar right now, but at the same time, technology continues to get better. So it's really a race for solar right now between technology and its ability to increase capacity factors, et cetera, versus the cost increases. Also, it's good to note that both solar and wind projects would really not be viable without the incentives in place. The production and the investment tax credits are vital to this industry and its ability to generate any sort of returns for investors.
0: Well, okay. So that's the perfect segue for, we are the oil and gas global network. We're huge advocates for the oil and gas industry. And so that leads me to two things that I'd like you to comment on. And we are very pro oil and gas. First of all, people need to realize that even with wind and solar, it still takes oil and gas to produce wind and solar, right?
2: Absolutely, in the manufacturing process of it.
0: Exactly. Absolutely. Then the second thing is, when you're talking about the headwinds that solar has to face, and that includes wind as well, and you're talking about you need sun and you need rain, looking at this political aspect, and that's kind of driven, I don't know if the dog wags the tail or if what, between the political and what you're talking about, the consumer, what the consumer wants. But it seems to me like, we're going to need some more balance from people like, for example, let's say Elon Musk, who's, you know, taking a lot of heat here lately from the ESG folks, because he sees the fact that there has to be this balance between renewables and between oil and gas. And, you know, oil and gas can be concerned about the climate oil and gas can be concerned about the environment as well. In fact, I saw a picture the other day of a mining site where they were getting all the precious materials that you you have to have in order to make batteries in your electric car. I mean, the mining process, it wasn't a pretty picture. Then I saw, in contrast to it, a really nice looking oil and gas facility that was manicured. And just from an environmental perspective, it just really looked nice. The future is going to have to find this balance and not this either or thing. Is that right?
2: That's absolutely correct. I think we always, well, I shouldn't say we, I think the media always talks about the tailwinds for the energy evolution and renewables. But the reason why we don't actually, we choose not to use the word transition as much as evolution is because it's going to be a bumpy ride if we try to transition in this very, call it rigid way. That doesn't allow for an understanding of many of the headwinds that these things need to also account for. First of all, we've got these countries like the United States and the European Union countries, these first world countries coming up with all of the, <laughs> all of the different rules that we have to follow from the perspective of the Paris Climate Agreement perspective. And what we're not really taking into consideration is that access to electricity still lacks in a lot of the world. I mean, there were 760 million people without access to electricity in 2019. And then there was also 2.6 billion people without access to electricity for clean cooking, right? Access to clean cooking, I should say, in 2019. Those are things that we need to consider. Are we going to make it even harder by imposing a more expensive access to energy and electricity for these sorts of folks by banning the use of coal or oil or gas in their processes? Additionally, you know, we talked about sort of the mineral requirements piece of the puzzle. The minerals are often overlooked and they should not be. It seems as if in this ESG landscape, once you go a couple of layers down, people kind of forget about what's all the way down at the source of it. And then they don't care, kind of out of mind, out of sight kind of things. But
0: yeah, yeah. Don't confuse me with the facts because I've already got my mind made up.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's right. and what we see is you know first of all these minerals are concentrated in countries like China Democratic Republic of the Congo etc where you wouldn't necessarily put them on par with well, almost anywhere in terms of the cleanliness of their mining operations or their human rights operations or labor operations. So, you know, that's one thing to consider. The other thing to consider is, is it's also a geopolitical problem that most of the reserves are in these countries as well. So you have a supply.
0: That's a very good point. And the oil and gas reserves, we own the oil and gas reserves.
2: That's right. So, you know, there's a geopolitical aspect to this. Additionally, there's a whole geopolitical aspect that may not, you know, may be overlooked, especially if you're one not drilling in the United States, and you're growing more and more dependent on these other countries with these mineral reserves. What you're also doing is creating a situation like the one that we're in today, where As you don't grow, the influence of the OPEC countries and Russia grows in terms of how much control they have over the oil and gas markets. And that causes issues from a geopolitical supply security perspective as well. So everything points to the supply security in a stringent energy transition or bust sort of approach. Being a bad one from a geopolitical perspective for the United States in the long term.
0: Well, SARP, you know, I wish you and Varus, I wish you guys a lot of luck in this. I think it's going to be companies like you that can maybe help get this message out more and more. I hope you're successful. I think it's companies like you that hopefully are going to come to the forefront, bring some common sense to this thing, and some balance to this whole future of energy transition and all that sort of thing. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And as I said earlier, for folks who want to reach out to you, we'll put your LinkedIn contact information in the show notes. We'll put Inveris' website in the show notes. It's been very informative. And again, appreciate you coming on the podcast and everybody out there listening. We appreciate you for tuning in. And tune in again next week for another episode of Oil & Gas HSE Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Please follow us on LinkedIn, leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use. Use all your social networking to tell your friends about us, and we'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.